for everyone with an interest in NASH or more broadly fatty liver disease, Surf's Up. Season 2, Episode 43 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. In patients with cirrhosis, even if we don't show regression of disease, could we prevent progression of disease and actually have a meaningful impact on outcome measures? We can't take a surrogate for a surrogate, but if we can get rid of the liver biopsy altogether and just take an NIT and link it to an outcome, that's where we want to be. Stephen's right on. It's in the cirrhotic field where we are close to the end point, where we can really move away from biopsy, uh, something the field's been longing for for a long time. This is urgently needed and, and we're ready. Some of these guidelines are 10 years old. We don't renew our guidelines more frequently to keep up with the pace of our own technology. Can the FDA be criticized for not moving? It might be that we're rapidly moving to that point in the NASH field where we move away from a more of an iconic every five year guidance document update to one that moves to a website that can be updated frequently. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Jarn Schottenberg, as they discuss challenges and prospects for new therapies for patients with cirrhosis, this week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. So this is my first of two weeks recording from the New Jersey shore. If I sound more relaxed, credit the leak back vibe of Cape May, where we stay. If not, I'm not sure what to tell you is whatever. I'm not going to worry about it. Today, we have Stephen with us. Stephen, how are you doing today? Doing great. Okay, it's good. And Louise, how are you? Very well. Thank you very much. And uh, Jorn Schottenberg, who, like me, is at the beginning of a two-week vacation, although this is not his easy week. How are you, Jorn? Thanks, Roger. I'm great. I hope I look as relaxed as Stephen does, and I'm looking forward to that vacation. Yeah, it's impressive, Stephen. Stephen drove to Austin this morning, has been working like crazy all day, and at least visually looks more relaxed than any of the rest of us. It's a real talent, Stephen. Very, very cool. Yes. Well, lots of practice. Congrats. It seems to be making perfect. That's a good thing. So on top of that, we, we have a topic that we've received lots of requests for, cirrhosis. In fact, a lot of different kinds of requests about cirrhosis. We'll talk a little bit about that. I'll discuss that in a moment after the icebreaker. And maybe we'll get to all of it this week. Maybe we won't. But um, we'll certainly dive in and I think have a great conversation. So let's start with the usual one good thing that's happened in the last week. Uh, since Jorn and I are both off work, let's make a personal good thing mandatory and a professional good thing option. Brave one, go first. Okay, I'm, Louise always breaks the ice, but I'm going to beat her to it today. So some of you may know Barry Marshall. Barry Marshall is a gentleman that discovered really the pathogen Helicobacter pylori. And he did that by ingesting the organism and inducing an ulcer and then proving that the organism could lead to ulcer development. And for that, he won the Nobel Prize, I believe. Isn't that right, Jorn? I think he, yeah. So, uh, so I decided that I have a novel therapy to treat NASH. And I can't talk about it today, but I wanted to study it on myself. So I'm actually going to start the treatment tonight. But before I did that, I needed to go get my MRI done. So I uh, went and got my MRI PDFF and I have 2% liver fat and my CT1 score is 702 milliseconds. Fortunately, I don't have liver disease, which makes my personal study a bit more complicated. I figured I could still have a 50 50% reduction in liver fat by going from 2% to 1%. So I'm going to still attempt to do it. And I talked eight of my buddies into doing it with me, some of which do have fatty liver. And so we're going to do this, what I call a pre-pilot trial, just with some friends. And if it works, we're all going to document our, our therapy and our adverse events. And, and then if it works, then we're going to put together a pilot trial and actually see if we can make a difference in patients 
with fatty liver. So that that's my personal slash professional interest for the week. I would top that off by saying that on Wednesday of this week, I moved my youngest child into Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And this weekend will officially be an empty nester. So it's a busy week. Two thoughts, Stephen. First of all, empty nesting was the worst 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> but that's about how long it was a problem. And then after that, it was, oh, good, let's go on. Second, would I be right in guessing that there's some Cabernet and Wagyu steak in the inducements for the people who are doing the pre-trial with you? It took some convincing, yes. Probably a bottle of Cabernet over a weekend. Uh, uh, and and these aren't people that would be linked to, to alcoholic fatty liver disease. These are, they, they're just weekend... Uh, social drinkers like myself but i think they they're altruistic in a sense you know they all want to they all want to they see what i do every day and they're very interested in they have to hear the bad stories right so now they want to be a part of a solution so my hats off to my buddies that are jumping onto this pilot trial if you will it'll be interesting i can't wait to tell you guys how it went that's great very very exciting oh i'll jump in next i'm not too sure i can beat steven's aim to get a nobel prize <laughs> But the premiership started, so Roger and I have already been texting each other about the football. So we we're happy that the football came back as a personal attitude for the week. But professional, I saw a young guy today that I fibre scanned. He's late 20s, eats a lot of high processed meat, fatty diet, liver fat three months ago, 372. Did him today, down to 270. So that's my professional one because he's a young guy and his stiffness from 5.3 to, which is a good range anyway, down to 4.3. So, um, yeah, he's absolutely delighted. He's sleeping better, following on from Jean's presentation about how it affects your sleep pattern. He didn't think he felt particularly unwell until he now feels so much better and healthier. So those are the type of things that I enjoy these days, watching that massive improvement. It's not normal yet, as we know, but it's getting there. And he doesn't even feel he's had to do much with his lifestyle just to accommodate eating less processed food, which was his big thing. Fantastic, Louise. That's really great. Okay, now we go on to the vacationers. You are new first. Yeah, let me finish up with my last week of work, and we actually got initiated for a study exploring a compound called Bellapectin in Nash cirrhosis, which is really a step forward because that study chooses a population that's pretty sick already. They allow thrombocytopenic patients into their trial. We'll get into uh, what that could mean for a patient a little down in this discussion, so that's exciting, and, and I've lined my patients up, and after my vacation, I don't think I'm going to get into those Stephen Harrison numbers of screening, but I'm ready to go and I'm looking forward to enroll patients for that study. On a personal note, I, I took my girls to a trail today, a barfoot trail. You walk over rocks and greens and through a river, a small little river here, and we completed that. It's a 3K walk, nothing major, but we remember they're, they're small still. So it was a lot of fun being outdoors and telling them a little about nature. And that's that was a very uh, reassuring dad moment. Remember those moments, Jorn. Remember the old adage I tell people is sometimes the days drag by, but the years fly by. And you know what? You never know which days you're going to remember. And you really never know which days they're going to remember. I mean, you know, mine are now somewhere between 28 and 35. And I hear about days of which I have no recollection. They're some of their best memories. Yeah. And there'll be more and more of those days for you, Roger, as you get older, where they remember and you don't. Uh, Steven, that's my life every day. Did, have we talked in the last week, by the way? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So at any rate, all, all true. All true. Lactulose only does so much as we're talking about cirrhosis. So, <laughs> Do you know my lactulose story? No, but I'm sure there's got to be a good one in there. Lactulose. My lactulose client is the only client I ever know of who submitted a photo from the National Enquirer to the FDA as a proof source for some of their marketing materials. I'll come back to this on another yeah, day. I bet. There's there's more to the story. Well, you know, okay, I'll do, I'll do 30 seconds on it, which is that we were trying to educate the nursing home nurses on the salience of the disease that people die from it. It could die from fecal impaction or it can die from constipation. And the most compelling source that we had was a picture of a major celebrity who had died coming off the toilet, straining so hard and had a heart attack. And the National Enquirer had a picture of Elvis Presley's chalk marks on the floor of his bathroom, which we submitted as part of our story about why it was appropriate to do that. Now, I don't know that that was what sold the case, but my client was, was okay ultimately with making the claim. It's the only story like that I know of. And see, it always comes back to Elvis. It just does, you know. Well, it's because you're from the South. It's because you're from Mississippi. Sometimes it comes back to the Tupelo. Beatles. 
right? I know. That thought comes back to the Beatles. So at any rate, my good news, I think, is that I've got these goals for this vacation that it looks like I'm going to be able to hit, which is biking an average of 15K a day, running an average of maybe three or 4K a day, but with at least one 10K run and one 25K ride. And the weather's setting up for that. My bike is setting up for that. And my body is setting up for that. So I'm really happy about all that. I'm also, as Louise knows, happy about Tottenham winning its opening match. In fact, uh, all better because all the leading teams in the Premier League won except for Arsenal, who was a defeated team that hasn't been in the Premier League ever and top like British football for 74 years. So Tottenham fans like two things in life. They like to win and they like for Arsenal to lose. We got everything this week. So with that, let's go on to a less upbeat subject. So we've actually been getting questions to do an episode about cirrhosis virtually since February. And the point in February was after the FDA webcast at the end of January, where they stressed the idea that you might have a path to approval without a phase four if you went through cirrhosis, people immediately started wondering, gee, how can I take advantage of that? And is this podcast going to talk about that at all? So that was the first time. I think the most important part, though, is the outcome part, which is that cirrhosis is the step after NASH and before a lot of really bad things happen. Hepatocellular carcinoma, transplant. Sometimes if you can't get a transplant or either way, death. And really on a three-year progression cycle. So this is severe and this is fast and particularly important because the buildup is so widely ignored. Tony Villiotti was talking about last week, relatively few people with cirrhosis know that even as they're walking around. I think Tony's number was about half. Stephen has a study that says that 37% of the people who think they're doing great are walking around with NAFLD, 14% with NASH, 6% F2 or F3, which means some of those are, are on that path to cirrhosis. So we're not getting to people until really late. And therefore, they're late, they're close to a severe event. And as of now, we don't exactly know what's going to work. If you go back to Jorn's um, piece on the NASH graveyard, for example, there are drugs that have failed more than have succeeded. And we don't know what the lessons are there. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn to Jorn. We're going to make sure to talk today about the disease itself and maybe about, and about diagnostics. And if we get to drugs, that's great. And if we don't get to drugs, then we'll reconvene this group within a couple few weeks and we'll go back and do part two. Jorn, floor is yours. Thanks, Roger. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say is that when we say cirrhosis, this covers such a broad range of patients being affected. You know, you mentioned the clinically obvious cirrhotic patient that has decompensated cirrhosis. And this is a total different story than a patient that works around pretty much feels fine maybe doesn't have really abnormal tests that we would do today, but a stiffness. And I remember Kankuzi on this session talking about two cases with elevated LFTs and, and transient elastography results suggesting cirrhosis. So these patients are clearly very different from the end-stage patients that might be picked up by most clinicians on, on physical exams. So also coming back to the histological fibrosis stage F4, this is such a broad disease spectrum that we have to subsegment it into clinically meaningful categories, also from a treatment perspective in the end. And the second thing that's important is that cirrhosis at one point has such a dominant outcome prediction for the patient that it's the second aspect of the disease. You know, the patient has NASH and then he developed cirrhosis. And by having developed cirrhosis, there's a momentum gaining in the disease process that really adds to the loss and quality of life, his mortality rate and complications. Those are the first two things uh, that come to my mind when we're discussing uh, cirrhotic patients. It's, it's a huge basket of patients and we have to subsegment them wisely and the relevance to the patient is high because the outcome is so different than a non-cirrhotic patient. And just building off of what Jorn said, for in the field of drug development, for, I don't know, the, for years and years, we felt like we needed to target patients with milder disease, show that the drug had, had a benefit, and then then and only then move toward patients with cirrhosis for a couple reasons. Number one, the thought was, can we really move the needle in a cirrhotic patient? Can we make a difference? And to that regard, we, we generally bucket those into two different categories. Can we prevent progression to decompensation or can we regress fibrosis? And having said that, to Jorn's point, this is such a heterogeneous patient population. Not all cirrhotics are created equal. And we can look at cirrhotic patients that have clinically significant portal hypertension and those that don't. We can look at cirrhotic patients that have varices and those that don't and subdivide those into response rates of who's likely to respond or not respond. But it only has come to light recently, I guess maybe with the FDA comment in January about kind of how we look at these cirrhotic patients and then 
more recently by some of the data that's been presented showing not only in bariatric surgery can we have an impact on fibrosis, even in this population, although the data is very, very small, but also with at least one of our therapies that have shown regression of cirrhosis. So that linked with some of the data, the post hoc analyses that have been done on the simtuzumab and silantertib trials, showing that in this advanced population of patients where there was regression of disease, there was actually improvement in long-term patient outcome measures. And when you put all that together, what we sense what we take hope in is the fact that this cirrhotic population is a huge unmet need and that actually we might be able to do something about it. Even if we don't show regression of disease, could we prevent progression of disease and actually have a meaningful impact on outcome measures? And the consensus is growing that we can do that and the agency is open to that. The regulatory authorities are open to that. And so it gives us an opportunity to now look at this patient population closer. Having said that, back to Jorn's point again, not all cirrhotics are created equal. And so we've really got to do a good job of subdividing those patients that we'd want to put in a clinical trial if we're going to to show a benefit. If we just throw everybody in the same bucket, when we look at NASH trials, we don't typically put thousands and thousands of patients in there. We typically start with a phase two, which is several hundred patients at best, and use a couple different doses of drug and treat for a finite period of time. And so if we have a wide range of cirrhotics, we might see a benefit in a subpopulation, but to see a benefit in the whole population might be a bridge too far. So we have to do a really good job of identifying which patient population we're wanting to study. But that would be my introductory comment relative to this population. But it is a growing population as well. And I reflect back on a a publication Arun Sanyal published modeling the rate of rise in the prevalence and severity of NASH from 2015 to 2030. And I think he was spot on in that modeling. I mean, he he quoted basically a 160% increase in the rate of decompensating disease and of progression to liver, well, to liver-related death and 137%, if my numbers are right, increase in the rate of hepatocellular carcinoma between 2015 and 2030. And just in the six years since that original prognostication, we've seen a rise in the rate of more advanced liver disease. Just looking at my original publication in gastro from our prevalence study in 2011 to our more recent publication in 2021, that 10-year time difference, we've seen a doubling in the rate of advanced fibrosis relative to NASH. So that prospective data is beginning to validate that modeling data that Arun and his colleagues presented a while back. So, Stephen, your last point's really interesting to me, and yours as well, because visually, I've always thought of NASH as being a little bit like an old river heading towards a waterfall. And it moves very slowly for a long period of time, and then it gets close to the waterfall, and it speeds up, and then it becomes turbulent, and then you go over the waterfall. That would kind of presuppose that you're on a single linear path. What you folks are describing is a path that within the cirrhotic population isn't particularly a single path over the waterfall, but something a little more complicated than that. Or am I hearing you wrong? Yeah, let me just quickly come in. I think that still the underlying driver, the inflammation, the steatotoxicity that builds up fibrosis and and causes cross-linking of collagens, it's not the fibrogenic response to that inflammation that drives it. So I think there can be bousts of progression. I don't think we know well that it's really slowly and linear. There's probably certain times where a patient really jumps uh, certain stages and then he reduces weight a little bit, stabilizes and then maybe jumps again out. So I'm not convinced it's really a linear increase. Uh, it's different in chronic viral hepatitis where you have the virus burning the liver all the time. But with this lifestyle associated disease, there's more heterogeneity to the progress. You made the point well that once you come to the waterfall, I think this is the time point where it really tips and, and the fibrosis burden is so high that additional disease characteristics, including shunting, altered blood flow, building up a portal hypertension, kick 
skin and, and then injure the liver additionally. So I'm the only one who's not on mute, so I'll ask a follow-up question. Does everybody come to the waterfall the same way? I mean, you said no, that there are ebbs and flows, right? But there could be, what I take out of Stephen's comment, maybe incorrectly, is that not only are there ebbs and flows, but depending upon exactly how cirrhosis develops within the patient, you might have different therapeutic interventions with what two patients who are both 20 meters away from the waterfall or 50 meters away from the waterfall. You might want to do different things because their disease, their path to the waterfall is presenting a little differently. At least that's how I'm hearing it. Yeah, true. And, and, and that's a tough one. You try to identify the underlying most relevant driver in the disease. And some it's genetic. Uh, we know that. The genetic background is critical. Some have uh, severe lifestyle, I'd call it, or nutritional errors where you can adjust by cutting out the orange juice or something on short notice. But then in others, it's just the poorly controlled diabetes. And that, that gets tougher. Diabetologists do their best. They, they get the HbC A1c down but still disease progresses with regards to the liver phenotype. I don't think it's completely understood. I always try to identify an, a relevant driver to my patients and counsel them on this, looking at lifestyle, and then also thinking about the drugs I have available, even in clinical trials, and, and funnel them to that trial, but not sure we understood it completely. We are beginning to gain a little bit of knowledge in this cirrhotic population. One of the things that I found insightful most recently is that those patients that are likely to have a response to some sort of intervention still retain some degree of fat in their liver. Really, by the time you approach burned out NASH, where you have no fat in the liver, but clearly lots of scar, that's that's a much tougher nut to crack. That's a much harder boat to slow down and prevent from falling over the waterfall, if you will. So that gets to who we should be putting in trials and how we should be assessing them at baseline. Early on, we we wanted to be sure to include a group of what we call cryptogenic cirrhotics or those people who had a phenotypic expression of NASH. Maybe they were obese and diabetic, but when you did a liver biopsy, there was no fat present, lots of scar, maybe a little inflammation and ballooning. And again, I think one of the lessons learned over time is that that's probably a, a different patient and is likely to not respond as positively as if somebody that maybe had had a certain amount of fat in their liver. So uh, again, some lessons learned there as far as who we should be studying, in addition to the fact that clearly we want to focus our efforts first on the well-compensated child Turcotte Pew A patient, those patients that, that may have m- minimal synthetic dysfunction, but histopathologically have an amount of collagen that puts them into an F4 category. And remember also that before you do drug development in this patient population, that the regulatory authorities are going to want you to have studied this in a hepatic impairment population. So not only child's A's, but you've exposed child's B patients and child C patients, and you were able to do PKPD studies and get at that. Because again, as you study a population more broadly of cirrhotics, inevitably you're going to have patients that are teetering between an A and a B, and they may become a B in the middle of a trial. And if your drug is significantly, the drug exposure, the drug levels, the pharmacokinetics change significantly between an A and a B, you would want to know that before you dose that patient. So there's a lot of nuances to, to studying drugs in NASH uh, cirrhotics, but, but clearly it can be done. And I think we're excited to be able to talk about more and more uh, of those studies are beginning to be conducted. Do you have anything you want to add, Louise? Questions? The one thing I'd add is that what we try to do from more of a nursing perspective and supports perspective is to actually maximise the patient's health around their cirrhosis. Because if we can maximise that, we can actually prolong and help them help themselves. That's key. Particularly if we're going to put them into trials, they need to fully understand. But it, the one thing that corrupts up a lot and from multiple patients is they can have cirrhosis written in their letter for years. They don't necessarily understand what the word means. If they're not alcohol related, their first thing is, but I can't, it must be a different cirrhosis because I don't drink. It's the same conversation comes up, but spending time maximising. We have nurse-led clinics that do FES testing in my old work area. So we spend an hour with each patient and their family making sure that they pick up early signs of decompensation, any signs of sepsis, because the earlier we intervene, the better outcomes we have. So there is a vital role in trying to paddle that canoe in the turbulent water to stop it going over 
your waterfall if we continue along the same analogy. And there's a lot of strength in specialisation at that level now, but it needs to increase to keep these patients well enough to get to and support through the trials that are coming and in progress because it's a vital part. One day can make a difference. A few hours can make a difference in these patients. They're all very much engaged in their health at that end. So, so we're talking about diagnostic challenges and classification challenges that go beyond Charles A, Charles B, Charles C. What do we know now about using currently available tests and anything else to make the correct diagnosis of patient, A, in terms of staging, and then B, in terms of what the specific challenges they're facing are? We've seen tremendous development in the field of non-invasive tests, and we're much better at identifying patients earlier. And if I see some of the NITs next to each other, then I get a biopsy and it tells me it's not cirrhosis, I start to disbelieve the biopsy because I know the NIT is so close to the biology. We can pair up MRI, PDFF with MRE, or even the transient elastography with a cap and tell something about the disease stage of the patient. So an important step here is to really link those NITs to outcomes that and be able to do those type of studies Stephen mentioned and move away from the biopsy because it just has the same variability at least in the cirrhotic as it does with a non-cirrhotic patient population. Yeah, it, the, these NITs are, are rapidly evolving. Just to build off what Jorn said, we can use MR elastography, for instance. And uh, if you pick 5 kPa, 5 kilopascal, that's generally accepted as a diagnosis of cirrhosis. Alina Allen, in a recent publication, and her colleagues from the Mayo Clinic have now linked MRE to outcomes. So, for instance, at, uh, at a KPA of five, if you follow those patients for three years, uh, there are a percentage of them, I believe it's 20%, that will actually progress to a negative outcome over that period of time. Whereas if you pick an MRE of eight KPA, for instance, over that same three-year period, you double the number of people that are likely to progress to an outcome. So that's exciting, where we're now able to take a non-invasive test and predict an outcome. We could do the same thing with a wet biomarker, ELF, for instance. And there are others. I mean, certainly data with FibroScan is evolving in this area as well. But the next step here is to be able to say, okay, Let's link the data that Arun Senyal presented at AASLD, looking at silonsertib and simtuzumab data, where there was a one-point improvement in fibrosis. There was a link to an improved outcome. And now we have MR elastography and L, for instance, that at a certain cut point, we're linking that to a negative outcome. So that if you draw the dots, the next step would be what change in the NIT correlates to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis? Because where we're able to do that, then we can now take that NIT and use it as a surrogate for an endpoint. Because remember, we can't take a surrogate for a surrogate. But if we can get rid of the liver biopsy altogether and just take an NIT and link it to an outcome, that's where we want to be. So to me, this is what makes studying cirrhosis such an intriguing thing to do in drug development for NASH because you're you're much closer to an endpoint than studying an F2 or an F3 patient population. And in my mind, we're also much closer to having a non-invasive test that can predict an outcome. So, you know, ideally, if we could connect that dot, if we could say an MRE change of half a point is linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis, then we know that a one-stage improvement in fibrosis is linked to a positive change in outcome. If we enroll patients just using NITs, let's say we just use MRE, and we take people with five or higher KPA, and ideally some fat, because we think those respond better, and we randomize them to drug or placebo, treat them for a period of time, minimum of six months, probably ideally a year, and repeat the MRE. And those people that have a half a point drop, if that's what's been linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis, then you can say that that patient is likely to have an improvement in outcome. Obviously, you would continue the trial to show that outcome actually happened. But once you do show that, now you never have to go back to a biopsy. And quite frankly, you don't have to continue to show the long-term outcome. You just have to show that in a cirrhotic patient population, they had a half a point drop or whatever it turns out to be in KPA, that that is 
an endpoint. And to me, we're much closer to that than we are in an F2, F3 patient population. Now, the next question would be, how close are we with our drugs in being able to impact that type of response? That's a whole nother conversation. But I can begin to see how we can design a trial to address this huge unmet need. What we need is buy-in from the regulatory authorities and what we've heard from them as recently as the AASLD Emerging Topic Conference was that we need need not only the hepatology division of the FDA, but we also need the biomarker qualification group of the FDA to all be together at the same seat as we design these clinical trials. Now, Jorn's much more familiar with the EMA than I am, but I suspect there's probably something similar there where there may be a different body that actually is looking at these NITs and not necessarily the regulatory body that approves a clinical trial. And so that's been the piece that's missing. Let's get the those two different important entities together at the same table and begin to have a conversation about how do we move away from liver biopsy. By connecting these dots that I've mentioned, we can do that. And then the next question is, how do we find the right patients and marry them up to the right mechanism of action to optimize that benefit histopathologically or to optimize that benefit in response to the NIT? Stephen's right on. It's in the cirrhotic field where we are close to the end point where we can really move away from biopsy, uh, something the field's been longing for for a long time. And I'm aligned with him here. This is urgently needed and, and we're ready to do it. So then the question becomes, Stephen, when you said, and the next question is, how do we stratify the patients? I don't know if stratify was the word you used or specify the patients. The next question I went to is, how do you drive that dialogue? Who drives that dialogue? Is that a GLI thing? Is that a uh, key opinion leader thing? Is that a everybody storms the tent at once? I mean, what's the most efficient way to make that happen? Or fastest, forget efficient, fastest way to make it happen. Everybody wants the same thing. The hardest part, as we've talked about before, in a movement is for one person to take the first step and get the second person to join them. Once that happens, the movement tends to take off. We started that a while back with the liver forum, and there was some early momentum there to try to collaborate and get things done. Unfortunately, uh, that momentum seems to have waned a little bit. Many of us are regalvanized, particularly seeing how close we are with these NITs. And more recently, by that discussion with Frank and Ania from the FDA about bringing in the biomarker qualification division to the same table, it really has encouraged me to want to regalvanize this meeting of the minds, if you will, to bring these parties together to say, let's look collectively at the data. Let's look at the data that's been generated by multiple trials. And maybe we need to collate that data and actually see what happens when you put thousands and thousands of patients together. Do we get at some meaningful numbers that then allow us to stratify patients appropriately and enroll them into clinical trials using a non-invasive test as both the screening tool and the end-of-treatment tool, looking at change in that assessment over time to correlate to an outcome measure. It's not that we don't have the interest. It's just somebody taking the initiative to pull it all together. The patient advocacy groups are terrific. I don't think they're necessarily the ones that are going to pull this together. It probably needs to be a combination of our congresses like AASLD and EASL driving some sort of conference or committee with the FDA and the EMA and the biomarker qualification group, some key stakeholders, if you will, coming together to really say, look, let's let's take the data that that nimble, that litmus, that pharma is generating. Let's lay it all out on the table. Let's evaluate it. Maybe we need to do individual patient data meta-analyses and break that down into cirrhosis versus non-cirrhosis, break it down into child's A, child's B, child's C, or whatever. But I think we can get at this answer, and I think we can do it very quickly if we're just able to sit down at the same table and have a constructive discussion about how to analyze this data. So I'll go back to the same question I asked a moment ago, which is who drives, who has the time and the motivation to drive that discussion? You started talking, I immediately went back to Mike Charlton's 
who's Larry Kramer of Nash? Who's Larry Kramer Cirrhosis, which is really how I've been thinking about this question. But well, quite frankly, the people that should drive the discussion are the people that have the most interest in it. And that would be the Yorns and the Stevens and the, the other uh, principal investigators that are working very closely with the pharmaceutical industry to develop mechanisms of action to target this disease. And we all see the patients. Louise sees these patients. GLI folks and the Fatty Liver Foundation folks see these patients. The guys that could drive this most readily are those that, that actually do this every day and really just... It's a lot of work to pull this together, but I think it's something that needs to be done. So can I ask it from the opposite way? What is it that stops them moving to non-invasives in that category? Because the evidence is fairly strong. What is the additional thing that biopsy seems to convey that they want to stick with? Because it is interesting in the cirrhosis population that they talk about the outcomes being non-progression. If non-progression was also an outcome earlier on in disease, we may not be overwhelmed by end-stage cirrhosis, but they don't want to let go of the improvement. Yeah, that's a great point, Louise. In fact, if you look at some of the more recent results that have come out from these phase 2B trials, semaglutide is a great example. There is data from that trial to suggest the drug prevents progression of fibrosis, but it doesn't have any impact on regression of disease, at least when looked at semi-quantitative. That's not been something that's been a focus in clinical trials of preventing progression of disease. Paradoxically, in cirrhosis trials, that's the main thrust of this is preventing progression rather than looking at regression of disease. So it's kind of the opposite. In non-cirrhotic trials, we look at regressing fibrosis, not at halting progression of disease. In other words, you don't get any brownie points for showing no progression. You only get points if you show regression. Whereas in a cirrhotic trial right now, all the effort is put on preventing progression rather than showing regression of disease. So that's been part of the conundrum. The other part is, quite frankly, Louise, the focus has not been on NASH cirrhosis because the thought is it's such a tough nut to crack. I mean, from the bariatric surgery data I mentioned earlier, there have been very few data sets in well-compensated cirrhotic patients undergoing bariatric surgery. And the LaSalle paper is really the key paper that's looked at this. And the numbers are so small in cirrhosis, it's hard to really know how many of those people are actually regressing disease. And at the same time, it's hard to really show that you've prevented progression of disease because, again, what are you comparing it to? The numbers are so small. So we've got to study larger numbers of patients, and we have to look at it through the lens of not only progression of disease, but how are we doing from a regression perspective? And liver biopsy is that's just been dogma, right? I mean, that's that's what we've always done. And we just now, or when I say just now, the past five years, these NITs have kind of come onto the scene. I mean, MRE has really kind of taken off in the past two years where we're, we're generating data linking a KPA to an outcome measure. That's just within the past year where we've gotten that. And Mason Nareedin and his group at Cedars have have kind of built on that data a little bit as well. And now we have clinical trials actually doing MRE and showing improvement in MRE. Uh, the Madrigal data I presented at EASL from the Maestro NAFLD 1 trial showed some of that data. So we're beginning to generate clinical trial data with mechanisms of action showing regression in MR elastography at the same time that we're showing that MRE natural history is that if your KPA is within a certain range, you actually are at greater risk of progression of disease. So we're in parallel showing two different things. MRE can predict an outcome, but there are also treatment options that can show regression of MRE, but they're still all hinged to a liver biopsy. That's the maturations we have to go through to get away from a liver biopsy. And it's just connecting the dots that it's as simple as that. We have to generate prospective data, meaningful data that will convince the regulatory authorities that liver biopsy is indeed an imperfect gold standard. And we have a better way to do this than using liver biopsy. So could you say, 
say that we might be the sort of masters of our own downfall. When we, when I was looking and reviewing, the, I think it was the Ken Cousy paper, they were looking at the guidelines. Now, some of these guidelines, and you hit on the point there that non-invasive technology has moved so quickly and COVID to some extent has hastened how we now do telemedicine. But if we look at all of the guidelines that everybody refers to, whether it's Arzold, whether it's Easel, whether it's the BSG, they're five or ten. Some of these guidelines are ten years old, way before some of this technology was even developed and sought and used. So the trials that you talk about are so innovative and forward thinking with technology that's not even included in our own guidelines. So if we don't renew our guidelines more frequently to keep up with the pace of our own technology, can the FDA be criticised for not moving until we move? The issue with the guidance documents is that they're very conservative and they're very evidence-based and they're driven by data. And as a result, they're very comprehensive in reviewing the data and they're very challenging to write. For instance, the AASLD NAFLD guidance document that I happen to be privileged enough to be a part of that was published in 2018 and is currently under a rewrite now is a very in-depth document and it's very time-consuming to put together. And so to do it with much more frequency is challenging. Now, we may get to a point like we did with hepatitis C, where we joined forces in hepatitis C, we did with the Infectious Disease Society of America, the IDSA, and we actually made a website and it's a living document that gets updated frequently as new data comes out. And it might be that we're rapidly moving to that point in the NASH field where we move away from a more of an iconic every five-year guidance document update to one that moves to a website that's that can be updated frequently. And there are people that are hosts of that website that scour the database and provide updates as it comes out from very nice double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials. Because again, what you might do in the UK might be different than what Jorn does in Germany, and it might be different than what I do in the USA. It really comes down to your comfort level and how you want to manage those patients. The guidance documents are just that. They're just guidance. It's not dogma. It's not necessarily standard of care, but it lends itself to that operation. But it doesn't mean that's the only thing that we look at. So I applaud your comment, and I might just introduce it here. I think we might need to move to something more like the Hep C guidance, where it's a living document that we can modify more readily. Okay, that's the headlines, and that's great. This brought to you by Louise, by the way. As are most good things. Even then, somebody needs to figure out how to drive that ship forward. But the idea sounds right. Stephen, I do have one more question that goes along that, which is when you say society is a conservative, then that might slow down the pace at which data would be integrated, which means you'd have to speed up the pace at which it's developed if you're going to get more data into the system, regardless of page or, or, or how you're going to enter it. Yeah, let me just mention that. We're at the point where we need a disruptive technology. We need something that can come in and say, look at all these thousands of patients that have been studied. How do we collectively bring those to bear? That's one of the things Jorn and I have talked about, Mazen, Nareedin, Naeem Al-Khori, and others, that we can potentially do through our summit network, where we actually are enrolling many, many, many of these clinical trials. And if we're able to combine, say, the ScreenFell data, the the placebo data or these NITs at baseline and correlate those to liver biopsies. All these things we can do if if we're able to get pharma to link together and look at this de-identified data cross-sectionally and mine that. I think we could answer a lot of these questions and advance the needle forward much more quickly. And then doing that in connection with the FDA and the biomarker qualification program and AI digital pathology, all those stakeholders are critically important in doing this, but we've always kind of fallen back to to our standard approach to advancing science. And that is, you know, maybe we let our societies take the lead and maybe we just wait for the next major Congress before we pull together an advisory board to look at something. We don't have to wait for the next easel or the next AASLD or the next emerging topic conference where we actually bring together key stakeholders. We can do this in real time and we can bring those stakeholders together through Zoom or through a chat 
function or a SharePoint drive, or there's all kinds of ways that we can analyze data collectively and drive this this paradigm forward at a much faster pace. Our patients demand it. Our society needs answers a lot quicker than we're able to bring them to bear. And the place to start is in the cirrhotic population because that's the biggest need. And Roger, just to follow up on that, it's not the societies that are slow. It's the, the quality of the evidence that has to be right to make a recommendation. And the field, really the Nash field, has been exceptionally in putting together big research consortia. It might be the Summit Nash Research Network. It could be the European FLD Registry or the US Registry. It's state generating data that hasn't been seen before in other fields. And the momentum here is really tremendous. And the quality of the data is better. We could not do recommendations based on a retrospective single center trial, but we can do now that we have these registries and we're moving really at a, at a speed that in hepatology hasn't been there for quite some time. So that would argue that the issue becomes how to get the people that have resources, connections, and latch keys that aren't intrinsic to the researchers yourselves to be excited enough about this to move on. Look, first of all, we're very honored to have Jorn with us today, but he's incredibly busy in Germany, seeing patients and doing his own research. And then he has a family and there's a a work-life balance that has to take place. So at the end of the day, there's only so many hours. It's a matter of finding the energy to really take that next step and pull all this together. That's been the challenge. It's not that people don't have the interest in it. It's just really somebody taking the initiative and pulling it all together. And at the end of the day, you're going to look back whenever it's done and you're going to say, wow, that, that really wasn't that hard. Why didn't I think of that? You know, and it's like anything else in innovative science. It's easy to look backwards. Hindsight's 2020, but it's really pulling that together at this point and taking the bull by the horns and making that happen and finding the time to do that has been the challenge. So here's my challenge to us then, right? What can a humble podcast do to get people together in a place where enough of them from different parts of the spectrum get activated together that, some, that, that, that somebody who has maybe a little more time or a little more resourcing or whatever can be that activator? Stephen, what, what I hear you saying is there's passion, there's interest, there's data. Everybody who's got it is exceptionally busy and pulled in multiple directions at once, which kind of actually goes back to the Mike Chart and Larry Kramer question. Who's going to be the person who makes this the one thing they do in their life and pull it together and yell and stomp and cajole? That person hasn't been identified yet or hasn't emerged yet. Everybody has the same goal in mind, and that is let's get therapy into the hands of physicians that can make a difference for these people with liver disease, whether it's NASH cirrhosis or NASH with advanced disease or fatty liver by itself. We all want to get the right therapy into these patients to make them better. It's really just how how can we do it where we're not spinning our wheels? If I'm going to spend five hours thinking about how to pull this together, who are the right people to pull together? And what format do we do that in? And then who's going to fund that effort? All those are important ideological questions that need answers be, before theoretically that all happens. But our podcast is built to generate those types of questions and generate enthusiasm to get the ball rolling and to begin to coalesce a group of people that can begin to address this particular situation. And we've made the first step today by having a nice dialogue about it. Totally agree. And I think this has been great. And we should all put our heads together and figure out, you know, we do the same thing every week, but we don't have to, right? We could pull together a large group of people for two or three hours, except the conversation out in pieces. I bet you Louise has the answer before our next podcast. I'm placing my bets right now. She is going to come up with the way and we're going to look back and say, oh yeah, that was so easy. Oh, that was just, you know. Well, I suppose you could do it here. We can put a call out to all contact, surf in the National Army, if you want to be part of that episode and recording to be able to do that. So let's put all of the minds together on the podcast and have that dialogue because Donna is having that dialogue, obviously with the International Liver Federation, the WHO are now more involved. So there, there is movement, but it would be an interesting concept to have Surfing the Nash Tsunami host one of those meetings to see who was available, who wanted to be part of that. Stephen said it, you, you need to be passionate. We're here, we give our time, we do this because we're passionate to try and make a difference. And Stephen's trying to get his Nobel Prize and they is really passionate... <laughs> 
Well, and, and, and Louise, if this is what it comes for, Jorn might join him, you know? Hey, oh, we're, absolutely. This might be the genesis of all that today. I retired. Roger's, uh, oh. Stephen's retired once. And we're, <laughs> we're, you're old. No, but we do this because we're passionate about yeah. a disease that kills people young. Stephen's right. We do have to follow some of the lines from hepatitis C. They pulled national teams together. They do it from a national level rather than people being prescriptive locally. And there's so much we can learn from other areas and other diseases as well as our own liver specialities taking that strength but yeah put the call out roger i mean i i know we're <laughs> over and i don't want to keep yorn up any later than he has to be here he's just been tremendous to be on with us and louise it's only one hour earlier at your place than yorn's place so the cat's looking at you going come on mom Let's get off the phone. But I, I think another thing that I just thought about that maybe uh, Jorn and I and a couple others can work on is maybe just putting out an editorial on a call to action to make this happen quicker. Sometimes those editorials are powerful. Some of the best publications actually are editorials written that are that are meant to just be paradigm changers. Maybe that's what we do. So Louise and I will put out a call to action through the podcast to find out where all the agitators are. You will agitate the agitated but not necessarily as active as they'd like to be through a paradigm-shifting paper. I think we got a couple things to do. Back to the who's got the time to make it happen. That's <laughs> that's well. That is that. That's why that's why it goes back to Larry Kramer. Somebody has to be that passionate about it that they're willing and and have the energy, right? I mean, I, I part of the problem is that most of the patient advocates who become patient advocates because they have cirrhosis tend to be a little later along in life. Yeah, and and in the words of my old mentor, it was amazing, Bruce Bacon. He'll say the best time to write is between. Between midnight and four in the morning. You're never going to mm-hmm. be bothered. But as long as you can be awake, I'm right there with him. In fact, that's when I, yeah, I like that. I like that thought. All right. With that, we've each got our tasks. We're about 10 minutes over. Jorn, thank you so much. Just in closing, the question becomes, uh, what's the one thing we haven't mentioned that might start to tip towards more action? Whilst we've said that it has to be the high profile, but I think the patients or people can still move this a big agenda. And if I was a parent of a child who's been diagnosed with fatty liver disease, I would be wanting to move that needle fairly quick. We need to look younger to start the momentum to change the future. You know, if I step out for a second outside of this group and listen to you guys, and I think this is really the people that want to change something and can make it happen. And for all these people listening, this is where the momentum starts, and then others will gain speed and will join us in, in these efforts. Amen. And we know the two things we've got to do, which is Louise and I are going to figure out how to be outside agitators, and you guys are going to figure out how to get a paradigm-shifting paper done within the profession, right? I've always been an agitator. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Although not too much of an agitator, you are a Liverpool fan. But um, so you are, and thank you so much, Louise. Thank you so much. Louise, Stephen, and I will be back next week. I'm not sure what we're doing yet, but I've got two or three thoughts I'm working on, and they're all good. Greetings again from the New Jersey Shore. Hard to believe that we're just seven days away from September as I record this, or crazier still, that it will be September already when you hear it. Oh, well, let's just move on. The end of today's episode might mark the beginning of an exciting new thing. As you just heard at the end of today's episode, we are considering ways to raise salience and energy around the issues with cirrhosis, finding the fastest appropriate pathway to champion NIT-driven cirrhosis trials, and compiling the knowledge that Stephen and Jorn discussed in a way that we can aid drug development in general. If you have ideas, thoughts, questions, please let us know through the discussion groups on LinkedIn and Facebook or questions at surfingnash.com. Welcome back, listeners, and a warm welcome to new friends from new places. As I mentioned last week, listenership has started to pick up again recently after a slow July. Well, maybe it was just too many people on vacation. Our last two episodes have amassed one of the highest two-week totals since we started the podcast more than 16 months ago. And big news, two days ago, we appeared on two podstatus.com lists for the first time. We made the top medicines podcast list for France, which means we've now made the list in every major market except Spain for at least a week in a row. And we made the top health and wellness list, which is a much tougher, broader category for South Korea for the first time. All exciting stuff. Interesting events ahead. As September rolls in, autumn is starting to come into shape with some great episodes and interesting events. Later this month, we will have one episode, possibly a special, covering Easel's Digital NAFLD Summit. Early in October, we will cover the 16th Annual National Liver Conference, where we may step beyond our comfort zone to include some talks that, while related to NASH, do not have the word NASH or NAFLD in its titles. I'll have more news on these and other events in the next week or two. Questionnaires coming Labor Day weekend. 
We have not completed questionnaire development yet, largely because I decided that while some items are worth doing while off the shore, like the podcast and staying in touch with clients, the questionnaires could wait a bit. I expect we will post and reach out for answers right around Labor Day weekend. If you subscribe to our advanced podcast news, keep your eyes open for email links. Likewise, for those of you on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, I want to thank Jorn, Stephen, and Louise for bringing energy and real creativity to a fascinating conversation today. And to the surfing crew, Mike, who makes us sound good. Eric, who makes us look good, and Polly, who makes other good things happen every week. We will post the next episode on Wednesday, September 1st. Donna Cryer will be with us. We will be talking about what the Delta variant of COVID-19 means for NASH. Remember, we started this podcast talking about COVID and NASH in the first place. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com, and we will answer on the podcast or the website.